Well, I invite you to open your Bibles uh, with me to Acts chapter 13 as we uh, continue our study in the uh, historical narrative inspired by God, written by Luke, of the Apostle Paul and Barnabas and John Mark, who is their assistant. So as we begin uh, in Acts chapter 13, we realize that... uh, So far, they have uh, left from Antioch of Syria. They've traveled to Cyprus and preached the gospel in the synagogues throughout the island. They ended up in Paphos, where Justius Paulus, the Roman proconsul, was amazingly converted after Paul struck blind a false prophet uh, by the name of Bar-Jesus. Uh, Sergius Paulus, it is uh, thought, according to inscriptions, had extended family and owned property up in the area around Antioch, Pisidia. Notice there's two Antiochs, so don't get them confused. And so now the, uh, the, the group of missionaries leave Paphos and they're heading to Italia, which is the, uh, close to the coastal port. And then they're going to go to Perga, but they're not going to stay in Perga. They're going to immediately go up to the city of Antioch. Now, as we begin reading in Acts chapter 13, uh, notice what we read in verse uh, uh, 13 of chapter 13. Now, Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, but John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But going on from Perga, they arrived at Pisidian Antioch, and on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. Now, this raises a number of questions which we really don't have uh, solid answers to, but uh, if you look at verse 13, notice that once they arrive at Perga and Pamphylia, which is a part of Asia Minor, that John Mark leaves. Now, Luke is a very careful historian. Uh, He deals with facts. He's oftentimes very, very brief and succinct in just recording what happened without giving explanations. So he just records that John Mark left and he went back to Jerusalem. Apparently, later on in Acts chapter 15, as Paul and Barnabas have made their way back to Antioch, and now they're getting ready to go on their second missionary journey. Barnabas wants to take John Mark with them again at that point. And Paul refuses. And Paul says he did not want to take John Mark who deserted them in the work. So whatever reason it was that John Mark left at Perga, We're not told, but later on in Acts 15, Paul describes it as an act of desertion. This was something apparently that deeply disappointed the Apostle Paul. It strained their relationship between Paul and John Mark. And uh, But thanks be to God, later on that relationship was mended as Paul writes in his very last letter before he dies in 2 Timothy chapter 4, He's writing to Timothy and says, Bring Mark with you, for he is useful to me for service. 
So praise God for His grace that can restore broken relationships, whether it's in a, in a marriage or at someone at, with, at work or whatever it may be, that though there was a schism between them, there was hard feelings. Paul looked upon John Mark as a deserter. I don't want him on the team anymore. He's disqualified. And yet later on, they're able to mend that relationship and Mark is very useful to Paul in the ministry. So the question that's raised, why did he leave? Well, and again, we can, we can speculate. Some say that he was maybe homesick for his mother. Maybe he was a, a mother's boy and he was a long ways from home and maybe he didn't realize the trip was going to take this long. Uh, but uh, his mother, of course, down in uh, Jerusalem was the uh, owner of the home where the prayer meeting occurred when they prayed and the angel got Peter out of prison and John uh, Acts chapter 12. So his mother was a very godly woman. Maybe he just missed her. Uh, some have proposed that as a possible reason for why he left. Others said that he resented Paul taking the lead over his cousin Barnabas. Because at Paphos, Paul now emerges into the front position, the leading position. And Luke even records that because up to that time it was always Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul. Now from that point on, it's Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas. And maybe John Mark, who was a cousin to Barnabas, kind of resented Paul, kind of usurping that leadership role on the team and some have suggested maybe that's why he left. Others said he was a conservative, could have been a conservative Jew from Jerusalem and would have opposed Paul's bold policy of Gentile evangelism. That's what happened on the island of, of uh, Cyprus where this, this Gentile, this Roman uh, proconsul now is converted directly without becoming a Jew He's directly converted. And maybe John Mark, still clinging to a lot of the Judaism, really struggled with that and decided to leave uh, according to some. Or, as others have suggested, that once you uh, get into this area, I'll go back, that's just kind of a... An overview of this first missionary journey. They're going to land in Perga, go up to Antioch, then Iconium, Lystra, Derby, and then backtrack through all those cities back to Perga and then back to Antioch. And so they're going to go straight to Perga here. But some have thought that maybe John Mark, when they arrived in Perga, realized that they weren't going to stay there. They're not going to preach the gospel there. But they're headed straight for Antioch, Pisidian. And you've got to cover a lot of mountain terrain. This is what you would have seen when the ship landed in Perga in that general area. And maybe John Mark said, hey, I didn't sign up for this. I'm no mountain goat. You know, I'm not going to cross over all of that because uh, Antioch of Pisidia is 100 miles on the other side of this mountain range. It's 3,500 feet in elevation gain. And maybe he just realized this is more than I agreed to be a part of, so I'm going back home. And the point is, is that really we just don't know. Others have even suggested that the plan was for them actually from uh, Cyrus to go to North Africa because some of the uh, 
Jewish believers in Antioch, where they left from, were from northern Africa, and they thought that maybe from Cyrus, the original plan was to go to North Africa and evangelize down there. But since Sergius Paulus was converted, and he had family and lands up in the Antioch area, maybe Paul and Barnabas decided, well, we'll go that way, and John Mark just didn't sit well with that. We, We really just don't know. It's interesting that uh, in the African church tradition, John Mark is named as the founder of the Coptic church in Egypt. So according to church tradition, John Mark did make it down into northern Africa and was the evangelist that established the church there in Egypt. We don't know, but he left. And apparently Paul uh, took offense at it. Now the other question that's raised, when they left Paphos and they go to Perga, Notice they don't preach the gospel there. They move straight up to Antioch. And the question again is, why didn't they stay there in Perga? Now, once they come back at the end of the missionary journey, they will stop at Perga and preach the gospel. But they don't do it on the way inland. They do it on the way back out. Why why not? And some have suggested that uh, maybe there are some reasons for that. And remember that when Paul is uh, heading up to Antioch, Let me uh, see if I can back up. He's going up into the Galatian region. Now, Galatia is a very large geographical area. But Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe are all in Galatia. So, this is a very uh, prominent uh, area. Paul will write one of his letters to these churches of Galatia in the south region of this Roman uh, province. And uh, some have suggested that uh, when, for example, when Paul wrote his letter to the Galatians, he told them why he went there to preach originally. He says in, in Galatians 4, verse 13, he writes to them, he says, but you know that it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time. Bodily illness is what took him up into this area. Now, why would that be? Well, uh, Some think that uh, the bodily illness that Paul is talking about was an eye disease that he contracted, ophthalmia. It would have been a swelling of the eyes. It would have caused a lot of uh, intense uh, irritation and uh, problems. And uh, for some reason, that motivated him to go up away from the seacoast up inland into uh, the Galatia region. And there's some support for that because even in the letter that, that, that Paul wrote to the Galatians, he says, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me if you could. Now, why would he say that if maybe he wasn't having some eye issues? And then at the end of the letter that he wrote to Galatians, he says, look at what large letters I'm writing this. This is how I end my letters. Look at the large letters, which might explain that he had some common kind of eyesight issue. Um, Sir William Ramsey, a noted Christian scholar, on the other hand, suggests that Paul uh, had a condition of chronic malarial fever. And uh, that could result in violent spasms, stabbing headaches, like a red-hot poker being thrust into your forehead. And the low-lying hot climate of Perga would not have suited him well if he was struggling with this uh, malarial fever. Um, You know, again, one of the missionaries that we support has struggled with uh, malaria 
and continues to, to battle some of the effects of it. Maybe Paul struggled with some of that. But by going inland up to Antioch, you're rising up 3,500 feet in elevation, so it's a cooler climate. Get him away from the coast where maybe there's more mosquitoes, a hotter climate that might have been difficult for him with that, with that uh, physical problem. Again, we just don't know. But Antioch is 100 miles north. It's 3,500 feet in elevation. It's a Roman province, so it's an important city. It was a, a Roman colony city. It would have uh, been the center of Rome's government and military center in the southern part of, of Galatia. And uh, obviously there, was, there were Jews that had been there for a couple hundred years. And they would have been very Hellenized. They would have spoken the Greek language. They would have read the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. They would have embraced certain Greek customs. So it was a good place to go and preach. We just don't know why he bypassed Pergamon, went up there uh, at this point in time. Let me back up here. Okay, when we come to um, to verse 15, 14, it says, But going on from Perga, they arrived at Pisidian Antioch, and on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. And after reading of the law and the prophets, the synagogue officials sent to them, saying, Brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. Now, he went to the synagogue. Obviously, that was the Paul's method to the Jew first and then to the Greek. And he went to the Jews, he went to the synagogues because they had common ground with him in the Old Testament Scriptures. So, obviously, if you're going to go and preach the Gospel... You want to go to people who know the Old Testament. So you go to Jews. You go to a synagogue. That's where you'll find them. And obviously, probably when he arrived, he may have introduced himself. Paul and Barnabas may have said, you know, they've been in, uh, from Antioch. They've, they've been in Jerusalem. Uh, Paul could have said, I was raised a Pharisee. I was a rabbi. I trained under the great rabbi Gamaliel. And, uh, and he would have presented himself as a teacher, possibly, and a believer in the Jewish Messiah. So now the synagogue service begins. Normally you start with a Shema, which is found in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. They would recite that. Then there would be some prayers, oftentimes from the Psalms. Then they would read two portions of Scripture, as indicated here uh, in verse 15, they would have a reading from the law and then a reading from the prophets. And then there would be an uh, expository sermon. Sometimes it could be very short. And then it would conclude with a final blessing. So right after they read the law and the prophets, the leader of the synagogue, probably aware of Paul and Barnabas being there in the service, said, brothers, if you have, in, have a message of encouragement for the people, please speak. And so Luke now records for us, in somewhat of a summary fashion, the first and the longest summary of Paul's sermons that he records in the book of Acts. There are several things to observe about this. Look at verse 16. Paul stood up and motioned with his hand, said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. Now notice very carefully who he, he is addressing. He's addressing both Jews and Gentiles. 
He knows there's a mixed company in the synagogue. So he says, men of Israel, that would be the Jews, and you who fear God, that would be the Gentile God-fearers, some of them would be proselytes, some of them would just be interested in the Jewish religion. And although Paul is primarily speaking to Jews, he's speaking to a mixed audience who understand and have exposure to the Old Testament Scriptures. Now obviously these God-fearers, they would have been drawn to Judaism because of their teaching that there is only one God versus the Greek-Roman idea of there being many gods, polytheism, the pantheon of gods. But the Jews only believed in one God and there's certainly a beauty and a truth to that and they might have been drawn to that that is much simpler than worshiping all these different gods. And also, the Jews lived by a higher moral standard than the typical Greek and Romans. And that would have drawn some of these Gentiles to Judaism. So there's a mixed group there, but they all know the Old Testament. Or they're familiar with it, Jews more so than the, than the Gentiles. But this sermon is going to be just packed, jammed with Scripture. And uh, obviously, that's because Paul is speaking to Jews and to these uh, God-fearing Gentiles who have been under the reading of the Law and the Prophets for a period of time, so they know Scripture to a certain level. What's interesting about that is when Paul, he's really utilizing the principle that he records in 1 Corinthians 9, that he's all things to all men, that by all means he might save some. So to the Jews, he lives as a Jew. When he's around the Greeks, he's as as a Greek. And this is contrasting the Scripture-impregnated sermon here with what we'll read later on in Acts 17 when he's speaking to pagans and Gentiles. Here he, he primarily focuses on special revelation. When he's talking to those who don't have the Scriptures, he begins and he focuses on natural revelation. So it's an interesting difference in style. Same Gospel. But he's using wisdom in how he presents the gospel depending upon the background of the audience. So here he's, uh, he's going to preach. He's a lot of scripture as he preaches to these Gentiles. You, you'll also notice as we read through the sermon that's very God-centered. God is a subject of almost all the verbs in the historical section of this uh, sermon. And God wants to make it, uh, Paul wants to make it very clear that God is in control of history. And that He's the sole author of the salvation that He's about to proclaim to them through Jesus Christ. So let's now launch in verse 17. He starts out from verse 17 to verse 22 by reviewing Old Testament history. He's going to allude to basically the history from the patriarchs to the monarchy. And here we see God's grace and faithfulness in spite of Israel's unfaithfulness. And it's very similar to Peter's sermon. It's very similar to Stephen's sermon. And I think Luke is showing that to to indicate that Paul is no innovator. He is faithfully declaring what God has done in the Old Testament Scriptures. And all of that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So we pick it up in verse 17. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers, that would be Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, He led them out from it. 
So now he's already summarized the 400 years they were in Egypt and then the mighty work of Exodus where God brings them out of bondage into the promised land. Verse 18, for a period of about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. Notice that, that condescending language, God put up with them. And we know that there's at least 10 times that Israel grumbled against God, complained against God, no food, no water, no this, no that. And so he put up with them, literally. And Paul records that, that God was faithful to them even though they were unfaithful to him. So for a period of about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness, verse 19. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land as an inheritance, all of which took about 450 years. So now we're doing the book of uh, Joshua. We're looking at uh, them going in, possessing the land. And so we're seeing all of this take place in about 450 years, verse 19. That'd be the... 400 years in the wilderness, the 40 year, I'm, I'm sorry, the 400 years in Egypt, 40 years in the wilderness, and 10 years in the conquest of Cana is approximately 450 years. Verse 20. After these things, he gave them judges. So there's the book of Judges. Until Samuel the prophet. So now we're getting into 1 Samuel. And then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And after he had removed him, because Saul disobeyed God on several occasions, he lost his his throne because of it. And after he removed him, verse 22, he raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he also testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. And from the descendants of this man, David, according to promise, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. So basically what Paul does, speaking to a Jewish audience, those who know the the Scriptures, he briefly overviews Israel's history, going from the patriarchs to the monarchy. Saul is a first king, but he's a bad king. Then comes David, who's a good king, God makes the Davidic covenant with David, which he doesn't allude to, but it's it's definitely implied here. And from that covenant, God now promises to raise up a son of David who would be the Messiah and who would be the Savior of all men, all kinds of men. So he's making a beeline to Jesus Christ. So once he gets to David, Paul's mind now fixates on David and the promise that God made to David to take one of his descendants and sit, seat him on an everlasting throne. And that's fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so that's where he's heading. So he's kind of moving in, in, in quick order to get to the point to preach Jesus Christ to them. And so we pick it up again in verse uh, uh, 23. From the descendants of this man, that is David, according to promise, that would be the Davidic covenant, promised to seat one of his descendants on this eternal throne. God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. And now from verse 23, all the way down through verse 37, he basically just preaches Christ to them. 
So let's pick it up in verse 24. After John had proclaimed before His coming a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, and while John was completing his course, he kept saying, What do you suppose that I am? I am not He, but behold, one is coming after Me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. So he begins to uh, review the, uh, the one who introduced the Lord Jesus as the Messiah, the Lamb of God, whom we just sang about. And of course, that's John the Baptist. I think uh, Luke is giving us a very summary, uh, a brief summary of this sermon. Maybe Paul went on and talked about how John the Baptist fulfilled the Elijah prophecies in Isaiah and Malachi. We don't know. But he does mention that he preached a baptism of repentance. That if you're going to come to the Messiah, this Jesus the Savior that I'm telling you about, you must come with repentance. You must repent of your sin. And of course, that was the message of John the Baptist. And Jesus preached it and the apostles also preached it. And then we pick it up in verse 26. Brethren, sons of Abraham's family and those among you who fear God. See, he still has, a, he has an eye on the Jews, but he's got an eye on the Greeks, the Gentiles, the God-fearers who are there. Verse 26. Sons of Abraham's family and those who fear God, to us the message of this salvation has been sent. And then he begins to lay forth the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 27. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing neither Him nor the utterances of the prophets who are read every Sabbath, fulfilled these by condemning Him. And though they found no ground for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. And when they had carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. So basically, he has reviewed for them the death and burial of Jesus Christ. Now notice how he points out the ignorance of the, of the leaders in Jerusalem. When he says, for example, that those who live in Jerusalem, the people, in verse 27, and their rulers didn't recognize that Jesus was the Messiah. And even though the prophets were read in their, in their synagogues every Sabbath, they did not understand it. They had a blind spot. And yet, in their willful rebellion against God's Son, they actually fulfilled Scripture. And he could have mentioned... Isaiah 53 could have mentioned Psalm 22 because, and this is what Peter earlier said, that all that they did to Jesus, Pontius Pilate, Herod, all the Jews, the, the Romans, was all according to the predestined and predetermined plan of God. They fulfilled Scripture. In their ignorance and blindness to what the Word of God actually taught, they ended up putting to death the Savior that Paul is preaching to them about. In verse 29, they took Him down from the cross. That would be the Roman cross. So already he's, he's bringing in the shame of the death of Christ. That He was crucified on a cross. That the Romans put Him to death. This would be very shameful. This is why they, they struggled so much with accepting a criminal because only criminals were crucified. 
But they took him down from the cross in verse 29 and laid him in a tomb. And then note verse 30, but God raised him from the dead. So basically what Paul is doing is just proclaiming the basic facts of the Gospel. The death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is the good news. This is what God came to do to save sinners like us. Now obviously he begins to emphasize the resurrection from verse 30 all the way down to verse 37. All deals with the resurrection of Jesus. You say, well why so much emphasis on the resurrection? Well, because those who expected the Messiah to come, the Jews, and they expected that the Messiah would be a political, military leader, they would have believed that if if someone claimed to be that Messiah and died, that disqualified him from being the Messiah because he died. So the resurrection is absolutely necessary because in the Jewish mind, the Messiah is not going to die. He's going to be on an eternal throne. And if someone dies, like Jesus died, was crucified on the cross and died and was buried, well then that would prove that He was an imposter. It would invalidate and disqualify Him from being the Jewish Messiah. And that's why Paul, therefore, in this following section, is going to bring forth both human witnesses and divine witnesses to the resurrection. Because he's going to specify that for to be the true Messiah, you both have to die and you have to be raised from the dead. You have to do both. And so the problem is not that he died, because he rose from the dead. And the Messiah has to, suffer, has to have both events for Him to be the Messiah prophesied in the Old Testament. So let's pick it up. So in verse 30, He says, But God raised Him from the dead. And for many days He appeared to those who came up with Him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now His witnesses to the people. So these are the human witnesses to the resurrection. So he talks about the disciples, the apostles from Galilee who all saw the risen Lord. And notice he says that they are now his witnesses. They're still alive. They can still vouch for it. Now it's interesting, he doesn't even mention his own uh, uh, vision of Jesus on the road to Damascus. Uh, Maybe he does later on. But uh, he's bringing in human witnesses to testify that Jesus, yes, he died. But He also rose from the dead. He died to bear our sins and to suffer the penalty of God's judgment. But He rose again to prove that His death truly accomplished what He said it would. And that He could sit on that eternal throne. So from the human witnesses, He now turns in verse 33 to scriptural witnesses or the Holy Spirit's divine witness, and he quotes three passages from the Old Testament. Let's look at the first one in verse 33, which is, comes from Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. He says, uh, in verse uh, 32, "...and we preach to you the good news of the promise made to our fathers." Promise found in Scripture found in the Davidic covenant, 
that God has fulfilled this, His promise to our children and that He raised up Jesus as it is also written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Now it's interesting, all three of these passages that he's going to quote all deal with King David. Something that David wrote or dealing with David himself. So again, he's very fixated on Jesus as really the son of David. That's kind of implied here. But notice he quotes in verse 33, Psalm 2, You are my son, today I have begotten you. What do you think he's thinking of when he says, Today I have begotten you? Well, it's not the birth of Jesus. It's not the conception of Jesus. It's the resurrection of Jesus. That's what Paul has in mind. He says that He fulfilled this promise to our children and that He raised up Jesus as it is written in the second psalm, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. The begotting, uh, the begetting of the Son, in this case, is, is an expression for His enthronement, His coronation. Being crowned as the Son of God in glory in heaven. The idea of the resurrection is, is, the, is the begetting of the Son in glory to fulfill, to enter into the fullness of that Davidic promise. And that's the way Paul interprets it here. And then he goes on in verse 35, I'm sorry, verse 34, and he says, As for the fact that he raised him up from the dead, no longer to return to decay, he has spoken in this way. And now he quotes from Isaiah 55, verse 3. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. In other words, I will give to believers the holy and sure blessings of David because David's promise has been fulfilled in David's Son. Jesus who died and rose again. That's the thought pattern that he's following here. And then we go to the next, the third Scripture that he quotes concerning the resurrection of Jesus in verse 35. He says, therefore, he also says in another psalm, this is Psalm 16, verse 10, you will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. And then he explains it in verse 36. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. So he quotes Psalm 16 by saying, this is a reference to the resurrection. Now David, King David died and he decayed. So he's not the promised Messiah that is mentioned in his covenant that God made with him. No, it's, it's one of his descendants. But Jesus died, but he was raised from the dead. He did not undergo decay. He fulfills this promise which speaks to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So three Old Testament passages Paul uh, teaches them that confirm the resurrection. That it's biblical. It fits with the concept of God's Messiah. It's necessary for the coronation, the enthronement of the Son in heaven from Psalm 2. It is necessary for us to get the, the sure blessings of David because David couldn't fulfill them, but his son could because he's been raised from the dead in glory. And it also fulfills Psalm 16 because in being raised from the dead, he did not undergo decay like David did. So you've got to have both the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And I think that's probably why Paul is dwelling on this because in their minds, a dead person is disqualified from being the Messiah. And Paul says, no, you need the death 
and the resurrection both to be the true Messiah in harmony with Old Testament Scripture and prophecy. And then in verse 38, he does as all good preachers does. He makes application. And he says, Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through Him, that is through Christ, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through Him, everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. Now notice what he's emphasizing here, both in 38 and 39. This salvation is through Him, through Christ. He says it twice. In contrast to you could not be free of from what the, the law of Moses brings down upon you. Christ will set you free. The law of Moses puts you in prison. It binds you. It chains you. But Christ will set you free. And He's the only one who can do that. Now what's interesting is that this salvation that He mentions in verse 38 really involves two things. It involves, number one, the forgiveness of sins in verse 38. So you have forgiveness. And then in verse 39, you have freedom. Now your, your Bible may have justified instead of the word freedom. And actually, that's, that's the word that Paul uses. So uh, I think it's the, uh, some of the other translations will say that um, everyone who believes is justified from all things through which you could not be justified through the law of Moses. And I like that. I think that fits. Being justified here, of course, means to be declared righteous before God. And that's the very thing you could never get from the law of Moses. You could never have God declare you righteous based on your attempts to keep the law of Moses. Why? Well, because the law of Moses was given to reveal sin. The law of Moses was given also to condemn sin and to bring you under the curse of God. You could never be saved by trying to keep the law of Moses. And yet, the Jews at that time had slipped into that kind of thinking. But you see, God sets us free from the law's condemnation and the law's curse by declaring believers to be just, to be righteous in the sight of God as if we'd never sinned. That's the promise. So you get forgiveness of your sins. Your sins are taken away. But you're also imputed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that's the salvation that Paul is really preaching to them at this time. The law can never justify or make one righteous. The law shows no mercy. And in doing that, the law requires that you must render complete 100% obedience to all of His commandments. And if you fall short in any, you're a sinner. You're disqualified. It's interesting that later on when Paul writes to the Galatians, the same audience... He will remind them that, that, that uh, if you do not abide by all things written in the, in the book of the law to perform them, you are cursed. He's reminding them probably what he, what he preached to them in this, uh, this message. And later on, James will say, okay, if you try to keep the law of God, but you fell in one point, you're guilty of all of it. 
Because it's either perfection or it's guilt and sin. You're in either one camp or the other. So you can never, ever be saved by trying to keep the law of Moses. You can no more reach heaven by keeping the law than someone can touch the sun by standing on his tippy toes. And at that point, it doesn't matter if you're only five feet tall or you're seven feet tall. The sun is 93 million miles away. And there's not much difference. It's impossible. You can't do it. And neither can someone get to heaven by keeping the law of God. It's impossible. But notice what he also says in verse 39. And through Him, that is Christ, everyone who believes is justified and freed from all the things which you could not be freed or justified through the law of Moses. Notice that word, everyone who believes. Now this was a theological powder keg for the Jews. What did you say, Paul? Would you say that again, please? He said, everyone who believes is justified. Everyone who believes is freed from all things which you could never be freed from from the law of Moses. Everyone who believes. Well, what about these Greek-speaking proselytes here? These God-fearers? They've got to become a Jew first before they can be saved. Everyone who believes. And this, this Gospel that Paul preached was a Gospel that, that stirred up so much ire and hatred against him. And that's why he was beaten so often and persecuted so much. Because they were so rigid in their idea that for anybody to be saved, you must become a Jew first. And Paul is very clear, nope, it's everyone who believes. And again, this would have been something that, that would have caused and will cause, as we get into it later on, a great controversy and a great difficulty for Paul and Barnabas. But notice after he says that, how he begins to <clears throat> wrap this up in verse 40 and 41. Therefore take heed so that the things spoken of in the prophets may not come upon He knows they're going to resist this message of the freedom of salvation. The promises of the Spirit of God. The forgiveness of sins. All this was in David's covenant promised to his seed. All of these blessings now. He knows they're going to struggle with the openness and freedom of this to anyone who believes without becoming a Jew. And so he says in verse 40, Take heed so that the things spoken of in the prophet may not come upon you. And now he quotes his last Old Testament passage, which comes from Habakkuk, or Habakkuk, as a Jewish uh, friend said, uh, chapter 1, verse 5, which says, Behold you scoffers and marvel and perish. For I am accomplishing a work in your days, a work which you will, will never believe, though someone should describe it to you. So he's now warning them. Look, don't rebel against this message. I've shown it to you from the Word of God. Believe it. Receive it. Repent and believe it. Don't resist it. Don't scoff at it. Or you will perish. 
And the work that he says, he quotes in verse 41, God says, the work that I'm accomplishing in your days is not the work of salvation. When Habakkuk wrote this, what he was talking about, he was a contemporary of Jeremiah. He was talking about the coming Babylonian invasion and eventually their destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. The work that I'm about to accomplish, a work which you will never believe, though someone should describe it to you, is the work of destruction and judgment. He's already described the work of salvation through Christ. But he now concludes his message with a word of warning, saying you better heed this message. Because as God judged His Old Testament people who refused to believe His prophets and brought the Babylonians in and invaded the land and destroyed their city, don't think that God will not judge those who refuse to believe in His Son. If you didn't believe My prophets in the Old Testament and I judged the city of Jerusalem and the nation of Israel, don't think I won't judge you if you reject My Son. That's the point. You know, what's interesting about this is how often we preach the Gospel and we totally omit, omit judge the, the judgment warnings of the Gospel. I think we're so easy in preaching it. Believe and just be saved. But we never bring the other side out by saying, if you reject it, you will be judged and condemned. And yet, that's a part of the message that Paul is bringing to them. Well, the response of the people in verse 42 and 43 is Paul and Barnabas were going out. The people kept begging that these things might be spoken to them the next Sabbath. And now when the meeting of the synagogue had broken up, many of the Jews and of the God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who speaking to them were urging them to continue in the grace of God. So apparently some of them had come to faith. And Paul and Barnabas were encouraging them, urging them to continue in the grace of God. Don't fall back under this works-based notion of Judaism. No, accept the free offer, the gift of salvation, the forgiveness of your sins, the gift of God's righteousness through faith in Christ. That's all that's necessary. I'll tell you, this uh, Gospel is a profound gospel and it's just as relevant today as it was back then because the works of the law can never save anybody all they do is imprison people under the judgment of God and yet today so many people so many people are trying to reach heaven by their good works by what they do, where they go. They're trying to some way merit God's approval so that they hope they'll eventually get to heaven. And that is a dead-end gospel. And it just reminds me, as uh, Paul again was emphasizing in, here in the book of Acts, that forgiveness of sins and freedom or justification is freely given to all anyone, everyone who believes. It's a free gift. And Paul would later re-emphasize this in his letter to these same churches when he says, Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. But that is the curse of man-made religion. That you've got to go to heaven by what you do. And every religion says to get to heaven, you've got to do. 
But only Christianity says to get to heaven, it's already been done. You just need to receive it and believe it. I don't know if you've uh, <clears throat> recognized this, the Scala Santa. These, uh, that, that means holy steps. And you can find these in, uh, in Rome. And while we were in the city of Rome, uh, by the grace of God, we were able to actually come and see the staircase. The staircase, so the tradition goes, is that Helena, the mother of Constantine, the emperor, after he professed to become a Christian, his mother went to Jerusalem to collect all the, everything she could that Jesus had ever touched. And this supposedly is the marble staircase leading up to Pilate's praetorium that Jesus went up and down during his trial before Pilate. And so the story goes, she had those steps removed and carted all the way back to Rome. There are 28 white marble steps. And they've been there since uh, the year 325 A.D., when Helena uh, brought them to Rome. What's, uh, what's important to know about this is that if you um, climb these steps, you get bonus points with God. And when you go to Rome, you've got to remember that uh, basically Rome has always been full of all of these uh, relics. And uh, basically, there are all these different uh, places you can go and see or places you can go and touch. And you can, uh, through them, earn indulgences, which will help uh, do away with your temporal punishments for sin and purgatory. Or you can do works of penance, which will actually remove the eternal punishment for your mortal sins. And uh, Rome has always been a one-shop stopping market for people that wanted to pile up in their pockets as many indulgences and, and works of penance as possible. It's kind of like going to Amazon.com. If you want to buy something, just go to Amazon. I mean, you'll find everything on Amazon. Well, if someone wanted to go and try to you know, get merit before God, you go to Rome. Rome was like that. For example, you could go someplace in Rome and get five years out of purgatory and go someplace else and get three years out of purgatory. And in the year 1510, Martin Luther, this is why I wanted to see these, Martin Luther went to Rome. He went to Rome on uh, business because as an Augustinian monk, there was, a, there was an issue in Rome that they needed to try to resolve. And so Martin Luther was sent as one of the delegates representing one of two men representing the August, Augustinian order. And he goes there, and of course as a monk... He's ecstatic about this also being a pilgrimage. So he could go to Rome and get all these indulgences and do all these works of penance. And uh, he goes there like a, he's like a child in a candy shop. He goes there on an indulgence collecting mission. He goes to all the holy shrines. He's collecting merit for himself and others he thinks in his mind. But one of the most important shrines is this one. Scala Santa, the Holy Stairs, 28 white marble steps. And the point is, if you go up each step on your knees, and you kiss every step, and you recite the Lord's Prayer on every step, 
and you go up all 28 steps, you will not receive an indulgence that will uh, get you a few years out of purgatory. It'll get you totally out of purgatory if you do that. If you go up one step only, you get nine years out. If you go up a step, there's a few of them that have uh, little crosses in them where apparently the blood of Christ was found, then you can double that nine. You get 18 years out of purgatory. But if you go up all 28 steps, which would take, take some time, it's like getting a, a, a get-out-of-jail-free card. You don't have to go to purgatory at all. And Martin Luther wanted to do that for his grandfather. His parents were still alive, so he couldn't do any indulgences for them. They're not in purgatory yet. But his grandfather had deceased and he was wanting to get his grandfather out of purgatory. So he goes all the way up this, this flight of stairs. When he reached the top, and when we were there, by the way, these steps had been covered over with walnut wood for 300 years. And earlier in this year in April, they uncovered them for the first time in 300 years. And now they're already covered back over again. And through the time we were in Rome, we actually got to see these stairs. And this is a picture that I took. And you can see how warped these stairs are because there have been millions of people do this over the years. And it got so bad they had to cover them up 300 years ago to try to preserve them. But now they're covered up again. But you can see there's two people there on their knees, slowly going up, praying. Why? Thinking that this was going to earn them merit before God. And eventually you get to the top. Luther did all of that. He got all the way to the top. And when he got to the very top, he looked back down and considered all that he had done. And his own heart being full of doubts because while he was in Rome, he saw the corruption of the priesthood. He saw the mockery of the monks. He saw the crime in Rome. It was dirty. The whole religious system was a sham. He was very disillusioned. He was very discouraged by his whole trip to Rome. He thought he was going to this glorious holy place and it was totally the opposite. And by this time, he gets to the top of the staircase and he looks back down and he says to himself as he later writes, who knows whether this is true? Who knows whether I just got my grandfather out of purgatory? And because of his own doubts, and because he felt no closer to God from all the stuff, all the indulgences, all the works of penance that he was trying to do in Rome, and he, was, he felt no closer to God, no peace with God in his soul, that he eventually went back to Wittenberg he got a PhD, his doctorate in theology, began to teach Psalms and Romans. And through the disillusionment and the discouragement of this works-based religious system, the Spirit of God began to open his eyes to the truth of the Word of God. And then he read those verses, the just shall live by faith in Romans chapter 1, and the lights began to click. That the just, the righteous, live by faith. They don't live by indulgences or works of penance or, or merit. It's by faith. And he began to study the Word of God and began to realize that the gift of salvation is a gift. There's nothing that you can do to earn it 
or to deserve it. And so, in Luther's preface to the book of Acts of the Apostles, he wrote this, It should be noted that by this book, St. Luke teaches the whole of Christendom. That the true and chief article of Christian doctrine is this, we must all be justified alone by faith in Jesus Christ without any contribution from the law or help from our works. This doctrine is the chief intention of the book, book of Acts, and the author's principal reason for writing. And I think that's the beauty of the Gospel that we preach today. Because so many people are still trying to climb the stairs to heaven. They're still trying to get to God and go to heaven to atone for their sins by changing this or by doing that. But all of it is to no avail. Because nothing, nothing can remove your guilt before a holy God except the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross, which we receive by faith in Him and Him alone. The very righteousness required to get you to heaven is a righteousness that you cannot produce. You cannot earn. It is a gift of God to all who believe in His Son and trust Him and Him alone for the forgiveness of their sins. This is the power of the Gospel. This is the Gospel that Paul preached. This is the Gospel that we need to preach and to share with so many who are still on the road to destruction trying to climb those stairs by their own efforts and works and merit to reach heaven. They need to hear the Gospel that only Christ can set us free. And may God help us to to share that. Let's close. Our Father God, again, we thank You for just the opportunity to, to listen to the Apostle Paul as he preached this glorious message of salvation. And Lord, so many people around us are still on that treadmill. They're still on that staircase trying to get closer to God by what they do or what they say or where they go or how they live. And Lord, we just pray that You would give us the boldness and the grace to share with them the truth of the Gospel. That salvation is a free gift. That forgiveness of sins and imputed righteousness is given freely by God to everyone who believes in His Son for eternal life. So Lord, bless us with the spirit of power that we might share this Gospel with those who need to hear it, we pray. In Jesus' name.